I felt like I was failing so many times because I thought I should be able to see this coming or I should have reacted in a better way. We had one nurse that was part of this telehealth program. He said, you're the kind of person I want to take care of me. Hi, I'm Bobby. I'm a certified caregiving consultant and a certified caregiving educator. I also lead a caregiver support group in my local community. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here, we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter is the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Speaking of best medicines, right? (laughs) (laughs) You got that right. Well, being in the caregiver community, we've met and befriended a lot of caregivers, and a number of them have been on the show. We have also made many new friends because of the show. Today, we have a guest who is very special to us. She is, in fact, our daughter-in-law, Miss Becky Collins. Um, She spent 10 years managing residential group homes for dual-diagnosed residents, including autistic children and developmentally delayed elderly with Alzheimer's dementia. She is a registered cardiovascular invasive specialist with the past two years in the critical care cath lab, performing procedures such as emergency cardiac and peripheral stents, pacemakers, aortic aneurysms, and carotid artery repairs. She was also the caregiver for both of her parents. Please welcome to our show, our very special guest, our daughter-in-law who we we love so much and are so very proud of, Becky Collins. Hi, how are you? (laughs) Good. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to be part of the show. I wouldn't miss it. (laughs) So our our listeners are both caregivers and those who need to hear from professionals. And and you're perfect for the show because you've done both. Why don't we kick it off a little bit by um, you sharing what you feel comfortable with about caring for your parents? Um, I started taking care of my parents. My father um, initially um, started coming down with some very weird symptoms, as my mother would say. Um, He would forget to put his shoes on. Um, He would forget to shower. He would say things out of the blue, like John Wayne was hiding his pants in the middle of the night. Um, But when we would see him, he would be fine. So um, we started to talk amongst the children in the family and decided to get him to a specialist. Um, The specialist had originally um, informed us that he thought he had um, Parkinson's with dementia. Through that diagnosis, um, he had put him on some medication to try and slow the progression. The progression of my dad's disease happened so rapidly. um, It was literally every two weeks he was taking a downturn in his cognitive and physical abilities. Um, And that's terrifying for not only him, but for the rest of us watching this happen. Because as we know, Parkinson's with just dementia, they can live for years. Right, right. With Roger, he had Parkinson's and he had Lewy body dementia. And he was with us for seven years. Right. So um, we kept taking him back to the doctors. to have him retested and the issue we were finding in being a medical provider myself 
was a continuity of care because every time we went in with him and explained what was happening, they wanted to restart from ground zero, but he was declining so fast that we weren't able to start from ground zero. We needed answers, you know, because they already had these other tests done before. So why Mm -hmm. are we going to repeat them? The last downturn he took, they finally decided that he he had a um, rapidly progressive form of Alzheimer's disease. When you say continuity of care, one of the things we found, and we were dealing with the VA for my dad, and a lot of times it was a different doctor. Is that what you mean by continuity of care, that there were different doctors? Yes. Every test, you had to go see a different physician. Every test, you had to fill out different paperwork, talk to a different nurse, um, get different things done, and none of them seemed to communicate with each other. Oh, yeah, that was totally frustrating. I actually, at one point, called a meeting of um, the patient advocate, his primary care doctor, his psychiatrist, the head of nursing, um, and put them all in one room and said, you have many patients, I have one. I want to make sure that we're all on the same page and we need to start communicating and put a plan together that everybody's working together because it was exactly that. The... The medications were working against each other. Um, the diagnoses <laughs> were not the same. It, it, it was terrible. Now, being in the medical profession yourself and being a medical provider, do you think that's partially because of the HIPAA laws? That one doctor can't see what another doctor has done? Uh, I'm just curious as to your insight. Um, it has something to do, to do with it. A lot of it has to do with um, physicians are required to sign up with specific hospital organizations. Um, So like out here, our two main organizations are HCA and BayCare. If a doctor works for BayCare, they they cannot get access to HCA's records. So in our case, everything was in the same hospital and it was in the same computer records. It was just a matter of one person looking to see what the other person was doing. The disconnect came if he was on the psych ward that's where their focus was. Mm-hmm. If he was on the medical ward, that's where their focus was. And it was frustrating to me because when I wasn't there to advocate for him or monitor him, he would cheek his medicines or his psych medicines away and he would begin to decline. But when I would question the nurses or the doctors, they say, well, he seems very compliant because he never refused it. He just flushed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. But they didn't see the record to understand that this is something that he would do in order to pay attention to it. Right. That's also a big issue. Um, my dad never ended up in the psych ward. Um, he ended up in a lot of restraints. Um, but the last decline he had, I remember I was at work and I got a call from my mother that something was wrong. And of course, I told her, bring him to my ER. I let everybody know he was coming. And literally from that point on, I didn't leave my hospital for two and a half weeks. I worked during the day. I slept in his room at night. Um, And I never went home for another nine months because once he left the hospital, I ended up having to stay there to take care of him. And then after he passed my mother, Mm -hmm. Um, but it was very difficult. Um, I fought with doctors I've known for a lot of years that I love and work with and respect highly because of the decline. No, he does not need to see a psychiatrist. How, if, if he's unable to, we know this, he has this base diagnosis. 
so why are you going to bring in two different psychiatrists to evaluate his mental status? You know, right. it, it just, some of it made no sense and it was extremely frustrating. Well, I know you uh, and the level of care that you, you would make sure that he had. I know that because of what you did for him, he had more days than he would have had otherwise. And that was one of the hardest things for me to recognize because I felt like I was failing so many times because I thought I should be able to see this coming or I should have reacted in a better way. Sometimes the doctors and nurses would say to me, uh, we had one nurse that was, was part of this telehealth program. He said, you're the kind of person I want to take care of me should this happen. Mm -hmm. So he recognized that I was doing a good job, but I didn't. Now, <laughs> I didn't. And I, you know, my mom helped me come to terms with my dad because like I said, he declined extremely fast. He, from diagnosis to his passing was nine months. The last time he was admitted into my hospital, the first night there, I remember we kept having, if I wasn't there, security was in the room because he was swinging at the nurses. That night got really bad. And I leaned over to stop him from pulling his IV out. And he came about hmm. three centimeters from punching me in the face. And I looked at him, I said, why did you do that? Oh. And he said, you are the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. And with a room full of my coworkers, I looked back at him and I said, well, that's funny because <laughs> you raised me telling me I looked like your mother. And everybody was like shocked. And I'm like, no, you know, and he kind of like stopped for a second <laughs> and just like he calmed him down. You know, we're only human. Right. You can only take so much pain ourselves, you know, when we're giving everything of ourselves and we're exhausted and we're hungry and <laughs> to have somebody try to punch you and insult you and you're trying to save their life, it's like, well, the, you know, the you're allowed to the lose your temper once there, in a while. She's absolutely adorable. <laughs> so it was the dementia speaking. She is absolutely adorable. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's important that you're sharing something like, like this because, you know, on the podcast, we, we have family caregiver, caregivers, um, but we, ha we have a lot of researchers and, and, and people that, while they've had some experience with it clinically, really don't understand it from the personal level. But somebody like you who sees it from both sides, um, who can share something like that, because so many caregivers come into it not understanding the dementia brain and don't realize that this is something that is not unusual to happen. And I think your response was absolutely spot on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he did that to my mother also um, at the house. He was, he was fighting us and fighting us, trying to get up out of a chair, and he wasn't able to stand and walk. But he was insisting he was going to get up, and she leaned over to kind of try and get his attention. And he looked at her <laughs> in the eyes, and he said, when did you get so old? And she kind of reacted the same way I did. She looked at me, and she said, you're four years older than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I try to tell people is uh, time travel is possible with somebody with dementia. And... Um, they may be at a point in their memory where he thought maybe she was 25 and she's presenting at 
45 or whatever it is. That's exactly what was happening with him. Um, like I said, it happened so fast. Eventually, we knew. Now, a lot of times people tell you, reorient them. Reorient them to time, place. Mm-hmm. Um, when they're higher functioning still, that, that's all well and good. When they get near the end of life, I decided to let them live where they wanted to live Absolutely. at that time. Um, if he, th- he thought he was back in the Air Force, I hired a male caregiver to come and help me who could talk army with him. Right. So, he, and I said, do not reorient him. Let him, wherever he's peaceful, let him be. They can't come to where we are. We have to go to them. We right. have the ability to go to them. They can't come to here. Exactly. So, and why, and it's traumatizing to them. Absolutely. Go ahead. Share with, share with Becky what you told Kelly when she said, I, that won't happen to you. Um, I was, I try to educate my children because he, I, I know that I'm fine until I'm not fine. And I don't know when I'm not going to be fine. So I try to educate them about this. And I told her, you know, one of the hardest things for children or even spouses is if the person with dementia doesn't recognize you anymore. Um, and it's heartbreaking. And so I said to her, if this, if this happens to me, what I'd like you to do is look me in the eye, smile, tell me your name and talk to me about your mother. And she said, well, that's not going to happen to you, but I'll tell my friends. (laughs) (laughs) And you get this pushback sometimes people call it therapeutic lying on saying, I'll never lie to my mom or dad or my husband. Well, it's not lying because to them, their reality is their reality. And if we try to convince them that it's not, it's just going to upset them and there's going to be aggression and, and you know, it's going to be heartbreaking. It's not a lie. I like to compare it to a very vivid dream I think most of us have had a very vivid dream where we woke up with heart racing, um, still in the moment of the dream, but we're cognitively able to understand within a few seconds that that was not real. They can't. Right. They cannot. And um, nothing, you can fight it. You can fight the devil to get them back and you're not going to. The route I chose, unfortunately, I chose on my own because Um, family disagreements was the hospice because of the lack of the continuity of care. um, And this was at the beginning of the coronavirus showing up. um, It was best we felt just to keep him home. There was nothing at that point medically other than them, him being in a hospital that they could do to help him. They wanted to put in a feeding tube. No, he didn't want that. They had told me, you know, their whole lives. That's not what they wanted. So the best thing to do is bring him home and let him be who he is right. and try and keep him as comfortable as possible. We did the same thing. Um, they talked about a ventilator. And mm-hmm. my concern was, is the ventilator going to keep him alive artificially? And they said, no, it's going to help him breathe. I said, is this reversible? And they said, in this case, yes, because it was pneumonia. I said, okay, we can do that. But then they said the feeding tube. And I said, no, we don't want a feeding tube. Well, the feeding tube came right. much later. when He had developed severe um, dysphagia. All of his food had to be pureed, mm-hmm. thickened liquids, you know, 
small bites, to, you know, for a Italian man whose food is everything, <laughs> that was very disturbing. But it was progressive and it was getting worse and worse. And um, they did suggest a feeding tube. And, and I talked to his, his nurse who was assigned to me. Um, and I said, I really don't think this is a good idea. And he said, you know, Bobby, the outcome is not that different. And with somebody like him, who not only had dementia, but also schizophrenia, the idea of putting something into his body like that, he would pull it out. There, there was no way that it would work for him. He, he had actually, um, in a couple of his hospital visits, he just pulled catheters out. And, right. and because it was something that shouldn't be there. And he would just take the catheter out himself. And there was no way that they could comprehend why that was necessary or, or there to begin now, with. Do you find now that you've had this personal experience and this medical training that you are educating um, medical professionals on these issues who may not have had this experience with dementia? Yes, yes. I am very diligent on the floor. Um, and in my cases, when I get patients that obviously have some sort of Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, dementia, starting, progressing, going on, um, I make sure I talk to everybody that I can to make sure that they receive that continuity of care. Um, because like, we have a baseline we go on our paperwork for neurological status which goes on your normal, my normal. We all have kind of the same normal. These patients, patients who are mentally disabled, their normal's not anywhere near that. So I need to make sure now that when these people come that they're assessing them appropriately because their normal's right. not our normal. No. Um, they experience in, in pain different. They complain about pain differently. Now, having, having said that, to our listeners who may be going through it or soon to be going through this type of thing, what advice would you give them as far as being on top of the education of the, uh, and making sure that they're being taken care of appropriately because their normal is not the same normal as we're accustomed to? Right. Um, the, well, the biggest thing is make sure you have power of attorney. If you are not married, um, make sure you bug and call everybody. Don't worry about being a pain in the butt. Don't worry about if I bother them, he's going to get, or he or she's going to have, you know, less care. Um, you don't want to look like that. Be that crazy person. Call their nurse if you can't be there. Call them five times a day. Make them answer your questions. Now with COVID and the restrictions going in, if you have a loved one in there, all nurses have iPhones on the floors. If you have an iPhone or some kind of other video, you can call that nurse and you can video chat that nurse in the room with your loved one. So you can see them because it's so difficult now. These patients who are coming down with dementia and Alzheimer's and also COVID, they're alone. Right. They're locked in a room. And the nurses understand that, a lot of them, and they want to help in any way they can to make sure that that line of communication stays open with the loved ones. Well, that's a, that's a great tip about using that. I often suggest that people use the video on their phones to show the doctors or the even other family members who may be 
don't come to visit or live far away to show them what behaviors they're seeing in in what's actually going on but i didn't think about using it um, now with the nurses so that's a great tip yeah right every, every shift change um, get that nurse's name get her phone number and you can text them you can call them you can video them now when when we talked Prior to this, um, you mentioned about when caregivers came into the home. Yes, um, well, we had dad home on hospice and um, it happened even more so when I had mom on hospice. Um, hospice will come in, you know, hospice is a wonderful yes, organization. They, they come in, this, you know, minutes after you call normally. Um, when COVID started getting worse, they started pre-screening you when you called in. Who's, how many people are in the house? Who's there? Have, then they ask you about each individual person. Are they running a fever? Does anybody have a cough? This, you know, and when you have a loved one who's in bed dying, they cough. Mm -hmm. They're running fevers. They're actively dying. And when hospice does come out, they screen you again at the door. It's not a quick process at all. Um, they come in and they put plastic down on your coffee table to set their things out on. They set plastic down on your furniture to sit on that and just to talk to you. It's unfortunate, but their time is extremely limited with the patient. So we had a very hard time with that. Luckily, my, my daughters came and helped me because my biggest fear was what if it's 2.30 in the morning? Mm -hmm. And I need somebody to be able to answer all these questions to hospice to even get him here, but I can't be away from my loved one that long to deal with this. So luckily I had some help with my children to get, you know, get us through that. But it was, it was very awkward, very uncomfortable. Mm. Um, but like I said, I, I would fight with the, even hospice and say, you need to get somebody here now. The medic, you know, the medication needs to be changed. How soon after your dad passed? Did your mom start declining? Um, two weeks, two weeks after he had passed. Wow. She, at first I thought she had, you know, um, typical romance story, the love of their lives, each right. other, you know, they had discussed it themselves. What are, what's the other going to do if one goes first? Mm -hmm. How are they going to get through this? Um, and she just decided to um, give up. Mm -hmm. And let it go. Um, she was very with it, though, at first. She would ask me very poignant because she knew I wouldn't lie to her. She would ask me about like what dad experienced. What happens to the brain when you start losing oxygen? What happens, you know, pain wise with this process and that process? And I was brutally honest with her. Wow. And um, we lost her six months after dad. Yeah, it was it was fast. Mm hmm. And she was scared she was, at first because she was like, if I'm going to have this, if I'm going to go from what your father did, I don't want to remember. I want this to happen and I want it to happen quickly. I don't want to be aware that I'm like my dad kind of knew, even though it was rapid. He had like a week or two where he knew something was really, really wrong with him. And he was scared. Of course. And my mom didn't didn't want to go through that herself. Just before we brought Roger back home, he was admitted to the hospital because um, he had aspirated again. Um, and I was sitting at the foot of his bed and, and he woke up and he said to me, I'm going back to Pittsburgh soon. I'm going to be with Shirley. And I thought, okay, that's the dementia talking. He thinks he's going to go home. And then he said, Mike promised me when the time came that I would 
be buried next to her. And I thought, oh boy, don't cry. You just sit here and listen to this. And then he said, I had a dream last night. God told me my job is done. And then I knew you pay attention to this. And, and I went looking for the uh, hospital chaplain to talk about, you know, how to go forward with this. And that's, that's when we brought him into hospice at home. But he had said he wanted, he wanted to die at home. That, that's, that's what he wanted to do. And they were wonderful. They were absolutely wonderful. Um, Very special people. Very special. They're great. Um, with the virus going on, I mean, we are lucky things are holding together in the healthcare environment as good as they are now with healthcare because we're getting sick ourselves. And if all the caregivers get sick, yeah, where are we going to be? Speaking of that, um, before when we talked, you mentioned about how you've been tested. Um, could you let our listeners know how the hospitals are taking precautions with the staff? Right. Um, every shift and anytime, um, like you leave for lunch, anytime you leave the hospital for any reason whatsoever or coming in for your shift, um, you get your temperature taken. Um, if you are above 99, you are sent home mandatory for two weeks off um, for a COVID test. Um, if, if, you're, get, if we get sick at work, um, you were sent to employee health um, and they will do a COVID test on you there. Um, the test is with the swab and the nasopharyngeal and we call it the brain toucher. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is not pleasant. Um, it goes back all the way to they hit the back of the um, nasal passages and then it it's, they spin it for 15 <sighs> seconds and then you're not allowed to squinch, breathe, blow out nothing then they slowly pull it out and then they do the other side. Oh my God. <laughs> and so how many times did you have this done? I've had four so far, four total. Wow. I've been lucky. Um, I've been negative every time. Um, I had a COVID antibody test and I've had no antibodies. So I didn't have it and was asymptomatic. The hospitals are taking a lot of precautions. Um, we don't hit the floor without our N95s covered with a blue mask. Um, we have face shields, goggles, we're gowned from head to toe. And I'm normally in an operating room, so I'm kind of more used to wearing that equipment anyway. Right. Now, we've heard about the rapid tests. Not rabbit, rapid. <laughs> they don't do yeah. rabbit tests anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, we laughed. <laughs> um, are they doing any of that where you are? And where I'm at, no, because um, some of the testing hasn't fared. We get a lot of false um, negatives mm. where, um, because I deal with emergency patients, patients coming in off the street, having heart attacks, being brought in by ambulance, having heart attacks, don't have time to do the standard COVID test. So they do a rapid one. They come back negative after we get them all good and ready to go to the floor. We give them a standard COVID test and they come back positive. So everybody in that room has been exposed. And that is what's happened to you on a couple of instances, correct? Yes. Because they do the rapid, it comes negative. We do the procedure. We still are, you know, gowned up and gloved. But when that patient's coming in immediately off the street, it, we're not. Because when somebody's dying, I don't care in a way. 
I want to take right. care of my patient. And they, they can't hear you through three masks on your face. So I may only have my N95 on. So, you know, they want to be able to see a face and your eyes, hear your voice. Right. They're scared to death. And if it comes back negative, we're not so ready to throw on all that stuff. We want to take care of our patient. So then to have it come back positive after the fact is just something we have to deal with and hope for the best. Well, I think you've provided a great deal of insight, not only for the family caregiver and shared some of your very precious moments with your family. We don't see what you as the professionals are doing to protect people. And I think you've made a lot of us feel a, a lot more comfortable. If something happens and somebody has to go into the hospital, you know, we feel frustrated like when, um, our son-in-law got hurt and, you know, that was a devastating injury and we were standing out in the parking lot and, you know, his, our daughter, his wife wasn't able to go in with him and it's feeling completely frustrated at that point. And there's talk now, and I, I even am interested in part of it, of having people designated as essential caregivers. So in extreme situations, a family member can go in, but what what you're doing and what you're sharing today makes us feel a little bit better if something should happen and we can't get in there. Um, because our feeling is once they're out of our control, we don't know what's going to happen and we don't know how people are going to treat them. And I think you've, you've helped ease that concern. I hope so. It, it's, we have to navigate this, this new stuff together. And um, like I said, don't be afraid to reach out to your nurse. You may not like the nurse's personality, but the nurse is there regardless to take care of your loved one. And we do love our patients. So reach out to them. Um, if you don't like what they're saying, let them know. That's their job. We can take it. Well, I also think there's a difference you know? between the floor nurse or the ward nurse and the emergency room. The emergency room is a whole yes. different... It's a whole different yeah. world. Uh, if you won't be able to get that <laughs> nurse on the line all the, all the time that you want. So you, you love your patients. You may not love their family members. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, actually, but um, we understand yeah. it. Because a lot of us are in this field because of things we've grown up with and have dealt with in our own personal lives. So that's why we know when we see the you know family member with the notebook, coming down the hallway you know, we've, we've been Incoming. there ourselves and that's how we know uh-oh <laughs> yes well we know that you have a busy day um and we want to thank you for taking time to be with us today and for sharing so much really good information with our listeners we appreciate that you know we love you and we can't wait until we're able to come and spend some time with you and colin and the girls oh we can't wait either we miss you guys tremendously well take care my darling Okay, thank you very much. Love you. Well, there was a whole lot of information there about what goes on in the hospitals, and I, I know that our listeners will appreciate that. We're, we're all lucky to have somebody, people that are so caring in our hospitals and uh, watching out for our loved ones. Yes, and like anything else, 99.9% the, the .9 of the people that are in the hospitals are really, really good people coming from a, a place of love, concern, and compassion. And that's wonderful. One of the things um, she said, we've talked about a lot of times that people should do is they had a family talk about her dad. 
And um, it's so important. It's just so important to, to do that for everybody to try and have that family conversation. Absolutely. The more engagement that you can have, the more understanding within family members, the better off it's going to be. You can find more information about Becky on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes, post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America, a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.